0: What I'm trying to trace is the development of a discipline and possibly also um, what that uh, traje- that track record means for the challenges we face in the 21st century So what in our, how the view in the rearview mirror might help us in plotting a course for the future um, and It rests on the three strands of an institutional development the history of universities and university departments Uh, an intellectual development, um, the history of scientific and scholarly thought and an ideological development, uh, the concurrent developing histories of national thought and transnational thought as they uh, have a very complex and intriguing dialectical relationship. Um (coughs) I'm going to to begin with um, a bit of an, an anecdote from Irish literary history. The Cambridge history of Irish literature came out good five years ago and and I was reviewing it, a fine effort, best scholars of their generation were involved in in putting together something that I was reviewing and I thought what on earth is Irish literature? Um, Because we were we're dealing here with uh, a corpus of texts um, in Gaelic, in Neo-Latin and in English Um, and of those three the what is now considered the senior language of the country was the last to reach the printing press so there, was, there were Irish literatures printed in, in Latin and in English um, and really a serious printed production of, of Gaelic only kicked off in, in the 1890s um, and um, these three traditions stood back with their backs to each other they hated each other's guts there's very little interaction between them except that of enmity so I thought what to do with thought experiment would this be the equivalent of doing a literary history of authors whose name begin, begins with P And this raises the question, do we need an internal consistency in the corpus in order to conceptualize a history? Is the notion of a literary history purely our own configuration or does there have to be some pre-existing intertextual cohesion in the corpus we write about before we can describe that historically? Um, And it struck me that in the various very expert articles which made up the Cambridge history of Irish literature Um, There was one glaring absence. Um, One of the crown jewels in in Irish literary history, Um, an anonymous poem in the persona, in the lyrical persona of a young woman. It's in the genre, probably imported from France in the Middle Ages of the Woman's Complaint, Um, called Donal Og or Young Donal, where the young woman is talking about her um, emotional and her social and her moral Um, bewilderment and uh, after her lover has left her, Um, it's nowhere. It fell between the cracks of the various specialist chapters in the book because nobody quite knows who wrote it or when it was written, nobody even knows the actual verbal composition of the poem because it's from an oral tradition which means that certain stanzas migrated from one poem to another and this is like a jazz improvisation you know what Charlie Parker plays on one evening might not be quite the same thing so much of this is an actualization of of, in a sort of long parole thing of a a poetic act and we have it in various manuscript redactions and the dating of the poet it's it's anonymous and the dating is usually said between 1650 and 1800 because the morality is post-council of Trent that's about as close as we can get Um, and it, it was not there Um, and I realized that what we had here is something which is also uh, is in in a way illustrative of the crisis of Eurocentrism in in world literature is how do you do literary history on a system that does not fit the Gutenberg pattern Um, and that will be uh, what I return to in my uh, at the end of my talk Um, but my my real concern was how how our national Literary history is invented and articulated and and what sort of crises are they in nowadays now? um, To take that from the national literature to the comparative literature this follows from things that have been said earlier today the question What does comparative literature compare? What does the who put the comparative into comparative literature? What does that mean? Um, and the um, assumption is of course that literature is a taxonomy that it is a system of discrete entities and that these entities stand in a structural relationship to each other and that we understand the system better if we compare the elements Um, and uh, as such it's no coincidence to find that it came up in the same decades that saw comparative anatomy and comparative linguistics I'll be going into those antecedents uh, methodically. If we think of literature as a taxonomy and we look at the connotations in in conceptual history behind comparative literature, the assumption is obviously that literature is a plurality of taxonomically distinct individual literatures which in German when I was a student of comparatistic were known as national philologien The unit of comparative literature is the national literature. This was the unquestioned uh, assumption and if we think of what is a national literature as opposed to a national football team or the national capital or the national debt what does the national mean in national literature again the assumption behind that seemed to be that um, uh, the national meant language uh, the, uh, the national literatures were defined by the language of their expression creating some obvious problems like Belgium or Switzerland but still prim- primary taxonomic criterion was that of language and uh, that language and nation hung together as the Flemish nationalist had it the taal is hans volk the nation is defined by its language those assumptions are all of early 19th century German vintage and we can also trace that back to um, the institutional develop, uh, origins of comparative literature um, language as the mental operating system of the nation Uh, We find expressed in Humboldt who anticipates Sapir-Whorf to some extent with the idea that um, language is more than just a tool for expressing your thoughts. It is really the matrix which gives shape to your thoughts. Um, So this type of philology puts the logos into philology and also is the beginning of logocentrism. Hence the illustration to this slide which is the title page of the Dictionary of the Brothers Grimm uh, who go native on the Gospel of St. John uh, in the beginning was the word, in Anfang war das Wort. What is the DNA of the German nation is the German language. And it is the logos, the word, that makes, that gives uh, every nation its specific cultural uh, place in humanity. And uh, this nation uh, is therefore also the most organic subdivision of humanity. We do not no longer believe in a division by class, by Religion by star starshine, by sign starshine or whatever uh, nationality trumps the rest of it. Now in all these um, uh, assumptions um, we see that the national is su- in the decades around 1800 being articulated into the primary organizing criterion of human culture. Um, it also goes for literature. We have a huge vernacular turn Um, in which, go to the next slide, in which um, every nation and uh, develops its own foundational epic. Uh, Those epics which nowadays we put in chapter one of our literary histories like Beowulf or the Nibelungenlied or the Chanson de Roland are all of them retrieved from the dust of libraries in the 1780s 1790s and are brought into circulation in these decades. The first scholarly edition of the Nibelungenlied von der Hagen is 1806, 1807, as a reaction to the dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire. And in a review of that book, Wilhelm Grimm, for the first time, uses the phrase national epic. National epic, which a decade earlier might still have sounded as much as an oxymoron as a, you know, um, a triangular square or something like that. National and epic in the 18th century just don't fit together. And a bit later Goethe will already say sarcastically, every nation, if it wants to have, uh, you know, walk with pride, uh, needs its own epic. Um, the idea that it's not just Homer for the Greeks or Virgil for the, for the uh, Romans, but that the Germans have their foundational epic. Uh, Beowulf, published in 1815 for the first time, uh, is that for the English, uh, the Chanson de Roland, discovered in the Bodleian, published in 1836 for the first time, it becomes the foundational epic for the French, certainly after 1871, when the death of Roland foreshadows Sedan and the heroic death for La Douce France. So all these medieval texts are retrieved from ol- oblivion, brought back into circulation, and seen as the vernacular epics of separate standalone traditions. So these are no longer variants on an undivided notion of literature as such. Each of them has its own Big Bang. Each of own. following Vico, in a way, has its own separate trajectory of development. Literature and language uh, accordingly are very strongly twinned. Language as the root system of the nation and literature as the flowers on the plant Um, and in order to understand the literature you have to be versed in the language. This is the beginning of our fetish for reading in the original. Uh, The idea that uh, since language is very deeply concerned with the national character literature cannot properly be understood unless we have it in its own original language. Um, and uh, um, the Lang and Lit model, I mean if it sounds like Siamese twins they really are Siamese twins, Lang and Lit is something which is um, institutionalized in the Humboldt style university in Berlin which is followed by the post-Napoleonic universities in most of Europe and we have it under the name of philology. Uh, The word has come up a few times um, in the course of today's uh, talks and it's the conceptual history as tra- uh, traced by Pascal Humel, Le Philologue et son oeuvre, is extremely interesting. Um, it I-, I won't go into it too deeply, but of course it all goes back to Vico, who in the Scienza Nuova juxtaposes the knowledge of the world as it is with the knowledge of the world as we create it in our minds, and the former is known as philosophy and the latter is known as philology. So um, uh, this is a very um, Deep paradigmatic development now the word philology is is not very often used in the 18th century And from the moment that Schlegel begins to describe himself as a philologist in his diaries in 1803 Suddenly it's everywhere and how from this incubation period between the Shenzanova to the German humble generation of scholars People begin to see themselves as philologists for me is still One of the great transmission uh, Conundrums of the 18th century that's not what I'm talking about, but I wanted to flag it anyway Um, And the philologists um, gain their symbolical capital and their uh, their status and their positions at university libraries and university chairs first of all by inventorizing and editing the corpus of the national literatures, all these foundational epics, all the the great textual editing that goes on Um, and um, very often this is an, an intensely antagonistic process. It takes shape mainly, and I'm going intra-European now, not just Eurocentric, I'm going into the inner fabric of of, of the the family quarrels within Europe. Quite apart from any European triumphalism there's a a deep sort of um, uh, Cain and Abel type of relationship within Europe between uh, French and German academia. Um, And even in editorial technique we see a, a very, very bitter enmity, the method of Lachmann uh, which, uh, you know, takes vari- variants of the manuscript apart and reduces them all to their putative ideal-type Urtext, uh, is resented by the French as some sort of mystic four-dimensional German speculative codology, And they just go by the best uh, manuscript there is and they take that manuscript and they note the variants of all the other manuscripts. And that's Lachman and Bédier. And it's, it correlates with the huge and quasi-anthropological difference between what the French call esprit and civilisation, and what the Germans call Geist und Kultur, and which is considered to be some sort of deep split in the Western mind. Uh, It it eats into all forms of um, uh, the academic cultivation of the literary past, and one of the great quarrels of the 19th century uh, consists, for instance, in the quarrel over the ownership of Reynard the Fox, uh, which we have in medieval French and German and Flemish and other versions, and everybody says ours is the oldest. And Jacob Grimm says this is a, a totem fable of the Franks which they got from the Panchatantra which is sort of a deep, you know, uh, anthropological structure of the imagination and Aesop is just a sideshow. And, fra- and the French say, no, no, Aesop is the main act and Marie de France and Aesopet, and we just follow through La Fontaine with that. So uh, the whole thing uh, is basically taking shape in that ongoing tug of war that begins with Jena and Austerlitz. Uh, in 1806, and will not be over until Versailles, uh, 1919, um, and where the contest is, is uh, fought not only over Alsace-Lorraine and geopolitics but also uh, the ownership of the archives, the clash of the archives that was mentioned earlier on. Beowulf is deeply contested between the Danes, the English and the Germans. It's is a Saxon epic, an Anglo-Saxon epic or an epic that's a set in Schleswig-Holstein and Danish territory. Everybody feels that they are the rightful inheritance of grandmother's uh, you know de, um, plate, uh, dinner plate. Um, Literary cosmopolitanism is very far away from this. What we have is an intense, um, bitter, antagonistic nationalization of something which in the Enlightenment was an undifferentiated, unreflected, universal idea, literature as such. And as has been mentioned before, Goethe's notion of Weltliteratur Weltliteratur in the 1820s is really a rearguard action against this uh, intense national chauvinism in literary studies. He, he Goethe sits on his Parnassus and sees that l- the lower slopes are being you know taken over by the Teutons and the Goths and he says well you know we don't want to go that way really we have ho- loftier aims and that and you know we should really have a global rather than this national tunnel vision. This will come back in the um, form, fa- formative foundational decades of the discipline in the 1880s and in the 1890s. This has been uh, the first chair in comparative literature is established in Lyon and it is around that time that uh, Goethe's 150th birthday is around the corner. We're in the decade after the Franco-Prussian War when Franco-German enmity is at its bitterst um, and certain intellectuals are already trying to do that romain roland Stefan zweig type of fraternization thing, you know Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And literary cosmopolitanism uh, is, is sort of retrieved from Goethe and becomes the ideal of um, people who want to save the study of literature from this intense national tunnel of entrenchment. <coughs> um, and so Jean, uh, Joseph Text with his uh, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau et les origines du cosmopolitisme littéraire is, is really basing comparative literature in a, a program, an agenda of literary cosmopolitanism which is not even Eurocentric. It's so much parochial that it's it's basically about the transcendence of French-German enmity. That's what it's all about. It's like the the European Union is really a a Franco-German project. Um, And um, that means that developments in Britain are totally peripheral to all of this. Because Britain is uninvolved in all of this German-French bickering that's going on in the 19th century. Um, The new Humboldt style universities are practically absent. Um, I should make one restriction, of course, there is one massive cultural transfer from Hanover um, into into Britain, of course uh, no new universities were founded after Oxford and Cambridge for a long time, but George II did found Columbia, Princeton and Göttingen, Uh, so there were some university foundations going on in, in the backyard of the British monarchy. Um, and from Göttingen and in the early decades of the 19th century we have a, a very important backwash, a transfer back into Britain through people like Henry Crabb Robinson and, and Robert Southey and others who want to have a German style, Humboldt style university in Britain who feel that a, uh, a reform of Oxford and Cambridge is not really on and the University of London emerges from that initiative in the 1820s uh, even so it will be a long time Modern languages are taught as a sort of a, a, a bit of an auxiliary thing. Uh, the real establishment of um, modern language departments, which is really the, you know, the precondition before you can have anything like comparative literature, uh, it takes a long time. And in fact, the red brick universities will be ahead of Oxbridge. So there is a, a stronger tradition in the modern philo- in the modern languages, in Leeds, Manchester, and Liverpool than there is here. Here we have the Taylorian. And when the Taylorian is founded, uh, there is one uh, uh, telltale reaction. I have it somewhere here in the, uh, in the place that I can find. But from um, uh, Thomas Case, president of Corpus and Winkley Professor of Moral History, uh, who sees people like Campbell and Max Muller and all these, you know, slightly disconcerting German trained philologists. Um, and doesn't like what he sees and uh, he says is that what we want to do and he says we an English school he says will grow up nourishing our language not from the humanity of the Greeks and Romans but from the savagery of the Goths and the Anglo-Saxons we are about to reverse the Renaissance (laughs) 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 Um, and in a way he was right Uh, um, so, uh, it, it takes a long time for anything l- of, um, f- like national philologies to take hold in, um, in the British system. And, and Britain, of course, stands aloof from this Franco-German rivalry. There's a, a century in which Britain swaps sides from the German cousin uh, in the 1820s and 30s to the Entente Cordiale 100 years later, um, and the development of co- comparative literature is deeply influenced by the turn towards France that takes place and turn away from Germany uh, by the end of the century. But um, there is no obsession with defending the nation against its neighboring rivals. Um, And that makes somebody like Bosnett, who is basically the guy who who coined the phrase and who is right in the vanguard of what's happening, an anomaly within that anomaly. So uh, it will not be until 1953 that a dedicated lectureship for comparative literature is established in Britain. Britain is way behind, and I'll be talking about Sonderwege in, in the next 10 minutes. Uh, and at the same time, Posnet is way in front. And, and that means that we have a couple of very intriguing uh, idio, uh, you know, idiosyncrasies uh, to account for. And that's what I'm going to do on my next slide. And this is the third slide out of four, so that you know uh, how the uh, uh, thing is going. What is specific um, for the British development is to begin with uh, a very, because there is such a slender basis for literary studies within uh, within the university, and I'm of course leaving the classics out of account, um, correspondingly the base of um, literary scholarship outside the university, that is to say in the literary system at large, is much uh, stronger. Uh, The reviews, um, and say elevated journalism um, from the Edinburgh Review to the London Review of Books remains a huge uh, platform on which to reflect on literature. And the, uh, the the notion that literary criticism as a form of meta-literature, as literary reflection, uh, is not really necessarily a form of science or Wissenschaft, but uh, criticism is a, an, ex, you know, an advanced form of essay writing remains very strong throughout the 19th and 20th centuries Um, and some of the finest names in the development of literary studies in uh, in Britain are are themselves literati and that is not quite the same uh, position as in 19th and early 20th century Germany or France Um, it means that a lot of talent is siphoned off to the literary system rather than the um, rather than to the uh, uh, academic system and there is an interesting uh, observation by a man, maybe you know him, I don't really know beyond what's, you know, in the general uh, you know uh, British Academy notices and that sort of stuff, H. V. Routh, a critic who was active in 1913, comes up with a very, very insightful thing. He decides to define what a critic is. This is the generation after Matthew Arnold when people are trying to decide, can literary criticism become an academic discipline. The critic, Routh writes, is really an artist, not necessarily of words but of facts, this harks back to some of the discussion we had at the end of the previous session. Whether he is studying an author, he um, is of course 1913 usage, he, she, whether he is studying an author, an age, or the history of a type of literature, he has to gather together a mass of sometimes apparently incongruous knowledge, often penetrating far into other ages and languages, or digressing into history, economic, sociology, and arts. And he weaves all this learning around his team still it stands out in a new garb. Fair and good. But then he concludes, it is obvious that in such a scheme of study, there can be no place for comparative literature. <laughs> it's food for thought. Um, and the idea that this session is about comparative criticism already reflects a certain unease with that state of affairs. I'll be coming back to that. What we do have are antiquaries. We've seen uh, some very interesting 18th century run-ups in in some of the papers today. Percy's name has been mentioned a few times and uh, the antiquaries um, look also at the native traditions of these islands um, Anglo-Saxon, Welsh and Irish to some extent and that uh, gets a certain foothold in uh, the universities. It leads Uh, Sharon Turner and his history of the Anglo-Saxons and the chair uh, uh, in Anglo-Saxon being a very important thing for uh, uh, also a public ethos which identifies the English nation and with their uh, um, German cousins together with the methodology of literary history we get the ideology of Saxonism the two seem to be important uh, imported in one and the same gesture uh, we see that very strongly in the strong links between Campbell and Grimm when they uh, when Campbell begins to edit Beowulf and, and gets his philological expertise from the German Germanisten. It's one of the reasons why Max Muller uh, later on in the century is looked at as a sort of a fifth columnist uh, that he's, he's really trying to turn us all into Teutons and uh, making us all think in a, in a Teutonic way uh, but certainly until that strangely un- celebrated centenary uh, the Battle of Hastings 1866 when Matthew Arnold gives his lecture series on the study of Celtic literature (coughs) and when when after the death of Albert we see a sudden turning away um, in sympathy away from Germany possibly because of the wars in Schleswig-Holstein and against France that Germany wages at that period um, until the 1860s people like Kingsley and Campbell and and uh, Carlyle and Thomas Arnold, Matthew Arnold's father, uh, very heavily emphasize the Germanic nature of the um, of the English nation and they see a westward course of enterprise that goes from Germany to England and then to America where westward the course of empire runs so the, here we get a first racially inflected idea of Eurocentrism which is very really, um, British imperial Against that we have the Celtic fringe which develops, if I may phrase it very briefly because time is moving on, as a type of Four Nations idea of, of British history, uh, avant la lettre, um, uh, and specifically interesting here is the development in Wales. I'd like to highlight the name of a man called Thomas Price. Um, and the people who, after Yolom Morganug, are editing the Mabinogion and who are having literary festivals. And the literary festival of the Estedvod becomes increasingly important for a number of foreign visitors who are beginning to be interested in the cultural diversity of Britain. Dwarkanath Tagore, the father of Rabindranath and one of the architects of the Bengal Renaissance, is a, a guest twice over. Bunsen, the Prussian ambassador, is a guest a few times, and it is in one of these Welsh Estadfoli. Oh, La Ville Marquet, the uh, Breton folk song collector, and the, the, one of the founders of uh, Celt- Celtic studies in France, um, visits a few times. There, uh, the, the idea of the Matière de Bretagne is developed in medieval studies. The idea that Arthurian material, you know, hops from Wales to Christian de Troyes. so we get very early signs of a type of comparatist medieval studies around the Arthurian legends. And it is at an Estedford um, that Matthew Arnold, on a visit, uh, becomes aware that although his father, the headmaster of rugby, is a committed Teutonist uh, and believes that the Irish are all mad terrorists and the Welsh are all you know passive-aggressive dreamers and the only practical people getting the empire done are the English. Uh, Arnold realizes that uh, he, his mother is Cornish and that he himself is a hybrid um, and again you know th- we don't have to wait until the end of, co- of colonialism to see that types of personal hybridity tend to trigger these types of reflect reflections he goes to Brittany and he reads Ernest Renan, who is trying to resist German in, uh, influence in France by dwelling on his own Breton childhood and saying we uh, Celts, La Poesie de celtiques. this is what Renard writes before he goes, you know, deconstructivist on, uh, on national identities. Renard is a total essentialist when it comes to his own Celtic roots. Um, uh, Renard says, We Celts have brought to Europe the power of the imagination. We have brought romance since the days of King Arthur. We are the four-dimensional minds. Uh, this is a, a dream that Yeats will still buy into later on. And this is what Renard uses to resist German influence. And Arnold says, This is just what I need. And basically, he translates or paraphrases La Poésie de Rasteltique into English and he delivers it um, as a lecture series as professor of poetry in Oxford on the study of Celtic literatures. Um, and a year later, Sir John Rees gets the first study, uh, chair of Celtic here in Oxford, which has now ignominiously bit the dust because that too is happening. Anyway, um, at that time, you see how Matthew Arnold. Is beginning to use ethnic categories and the idea of race as a proxy for what in on the continent is the idea of nationality Arnold is constantly using the metaphor of race he uh, he wants to Hellenize uh, England because England is full of Philistines and uh, the Anglo-Saxon stolidity needs to be leavened with a bit of Celtic fantasy and if England is superior to Germany, uh, that is because the Germans don't have y- have any Celtic, you know, minorities in their ba- in their backyard. Whereas Shakespeare, with Puck and uh, you know the uh, other signs of Welsh superstition, always had that bit of extra that made him more than just a uh, a dour, plodding realist. So all types of cultural temperament are ethnicized by Matthew Arnold, um, and uh, for him the an almost anthropological ethnic diversity of the British Isles is uh, the descent of various types of imagination and literary fantasy. A very strange, essentialist way uh, for, for uh, preaching cultural relativism. At the same time, Arnold is probably closer to Goethe than Joseph or any of his contemporaries on the continent, if he falls back on Goethe's in defining the uh, task of the critic as um, learning and propagating the best that is known in the world, the best that is known in thoughts in the world. Nowadays it is impossible for us not to read that in rank Eurocentric terms and saying, what world you think you can speak for the world and uh, we've, te- we've seen all these critiques of Eurocentrism before uh, you know, have some patience with the poor guy. Attila de Hund was probably a sexist, you know, they, they didn't know any better. This is a, a long time ago. Um, I think if we take him literally and we, we use the word world as the, world, the word world was meant to be used, there's still something in that program. And, and, and certainly, um, uh, like Goethe, Arnold wants to resist the chauvinist entrenchment of much of culture in his day and wants to leave it with a more open view and um, uh, this unfortunately ties in with the Imperial ethnography which Max uh is it, its the ambience for that um, the Empire is multi-ethnic that's what empires usually are that's why they're different from the ideal of the nation-state and there is an increasingly ethnographical interest in this uh, the makeup of the Empire and also the cognitive control over the outlying regions of the earth uh, by just anthropologically Getting their number, um, and uh, Posnet comes from that particular neck of the woods. Uh, I've, I've, you've seen the chapter, and if you haven't, well, you may at some later point. Uh, his family is from uh, 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 has East India roots. His father was a chaplain for the East India Company uh, in uh, in India, and um, Posnet does something which is very much in the air. He is from Ireland but he's part of the imperial project and he says well we have basically a stadial view where from our vantage point in highly developed Britain we can look back at archaic societies at the fringes and the peripheries of the world and we get this idea that ancient Ireland with its clan society is a bit like what we see in ancient India Um, and this constant combination of the Brahmins and the Bards uh, and uh, the village communities in the east and west where you have a stadialism where Uh, The the imperial center allows, through comparison, to see various primitive stages of society reflected in their literary track record. Um, And that is the underpinning of his book Comparative Literature. Uh, Posnet looks at ancient Irish literature, so he falls back on this tradition of Celtic philology. Um, He looks at at clan societies as an early form of social development. And he says this is comparable to what we see in uh, in, in primitive society in South Asia. Um, All all these trends come together in a notion that um, comparative literature as a corrective to national chauvinism is not really an issue in the British developments. Nationality is only a matter for the minorities, for the Celtic fringe, for the people who have an issue with being British and not being English. And for the rest of cultural comparison, the idea of ethnicity, race and empire is much more important than the idea of nationality. All these things could be traced through the uh, 20th century but I want to add a few thoughts on what they mean now uh, by way of a conclusion. Um, So um, we are now in a post-national post-imperial phase and the very late institutional consolidation of comparative literature in Britain means that the crises of comparative literature from the moment they were proclaimed by Welleck and have been proclaimed every three or four years ever since like whenever there was an Olympic Games there's probably also a crisis of comparative literature. <laughs> Um uh, Are that much more problematic here maybe because there's less of a, a robust institutional history to look back on than in other countries. Um, and so this morning there was a very interesting positioning of comparative literature in the triangle with world literature and post-colonial literature. I, li- I like that that tripod very much. I thought it was a, a good way of conceptualizing it. Um, and we see from Colombia, where with Damroche and Emily Aptor and, and a lot of people worldwide are beginning to re-reflect on, you know, uh, it's no longer the Etienneble game of littérature uh, vraiment comparée, the idea that Europe is no longer an ambience but what do you do if you you know try to really go global uh, is that Eurocentric? Is it feasible? Where do you go? It's a bit of an anguish and I would like to suggest that um, basically um, the, the British case and what I've seen happening here today is already its own answer. I would like to see the, the crisis uh, or the, the great sea change in literary studies since 1975 when the BCLA was, was, was founded not only in, if you like, the rise uh, of, of the post-colonial paradigm, Said writing in 1978 and you know Fanon finally getting translated, but also in let's a more general uh, trend which I would call the death of essentialism. Uh, I, I think uh, you know essentialism, the idea is well and truly dead, now we're all constructivists now, you know although people vote UKIP uh, as one thing but in in these rooms um, and Um, that reflects in a number of ways on how we do literature at large, not only within comparative literature but at large. The nation as the natural matrix within which to study literary activity is beginning to lose credibility. Um, The notion, and here I come back to my Irish example, that texts have an underwritten meaning which resides in their date of origin and the moment when their author finished the text. Is not tenable for the great majority of the periods and places of humanity um, both within and without Europe. Bernard Serpuglini within Europe in his Eloge de la Variante has said that manuscript traditions live on the the, you know the the continuous uh, generation of variant readings and that the individual text is is a chimera Um, and uh, you know authorial intentionality the autonomy of the text even in its verbal substance. Uh, Identity um, as something which emerges from Genesis, from the genetic moment is gone. Uh, We now see identity much more as something which is constructed in the process of appropriation in an afterlife. Um, And literary history as the history of literary production which bedeviled the Cambridge history of Irish literature is obviously untenable. What we now see increasingly and the chairman for the last panel had a, uh, put his finger right on it, is that what's happening, what, what ev- is happening happening everywhere after the death of essentialism is we're looking at perform- uh, performativity of literature, the appropriation of literature, the reception of literature. And that involves a multitude of negotiating cultural fault lines, borders. And we don't even know if those borders or fault lines are with between nations or between genders or between you know, um, genres. Uh, they can be of any type of nature. Um, and, and transnational has, you know, destroyed the notion of the nation as much as it transcends in the Hegelian Aufhebung. So, um, now that also in sociology we're looking at transnational studies of cultural transfer, it's obvious that literary studies are doing that as well and with the project of the reception of British authors abroad we have an example of how reception studies work and what nowadays we call the social life of texts, how texts come to life after they have left their author and once they become the property of people who do things with those texts. And you know, it's not a problem. We've been performing it all day. So, you know, good luck. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for this lively and uh, entertaining, but also deeply thought-provoking presentation to which we will come back. Uh, Professor um, Richard Robertson is going to respond to this. I don't need to introduce him, he has okay. been introduced already. So you we'll want to respond to this paper, then we'll come back to begin our uh, debate uh, about Good. it. Thank
1: you. I'll stand up to be more audible. I'd like first of all, once again, to thank the speaker very, very warmly indeed. For people who are was informative, ent- entertaining, rich and, and persuasive, as we're telling a story which, as far as I know, has not been told, that was a bit of wonder in the study of comparative literature. Um, I think I just want to take up and try to amplify or modify um, um, four points. First, I think it is an enormously important remark that um, national literatures, keeping the term in scare quotes, which I hope you can hear, um, national literatures are not homogeneous, the attempt to make them homogeneous was another invention of the 19th century. Jürgen Erlson, having written the history of <coughs> conceptions of a nation, knows very well that, as from Ernest Gelder showed in the 1980s, 19th century nationalism involved an enormous effort to homogenize national cultures. For example, when Italy was unified, it was found that only 3% of the population spoke what was considered to be Italian. (laughs) So a big effort had to put in to making Italians. But if you think of of what national cultures, um, the cultures which ostensibly exist within a particular language are really like, we find something that hasn't been mentioned hitherto, which comes to bulk very large in the 19th century And that is the existence of dialect uh, uh, literature. We can go back before the 19th century for this. It was in 1786 that at Kilmarnock, a modest book was published under the title Poems Chiefly in the Scottish Dialect by Robert Burns. And a few decades later, in the extreme south of Germany, Johann Peter Abel published his poems Many of them great poems in Alemannic dialect. If you want to see what Hebel is like, a wonderful example is given by by the late Leonard Forster in his Penguin Book of German Verse. And throughout the 19th century, at least in the um, countries that I know anything about, you find an an efflorescence of dialect writing. (coughs) You find writing in Plattdeutsch in North Germany by Klaus Groth and Fritz Reuter. You find dialect poetry in English by William Barnes, dialect poems written by Tennyson, the Lincolnshire farmer. Um, so this is a, a counter-movement to the construction of a national literature. And in fact, um, we could usefully at this point, I think, um, think of Kafka's notes written on the 25th of December 1911 on small literatures. The concept has had a great afterlife, thanks to Deleuze and Guattari, but I think we should put their book aside and go back to the actually much more interesting Kafka. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one point, that so-called national literatures are, are not internally homogeneous and in the period under discussion, they're becoming less so. Second, um, we've heard quite a lot, and we absolutely right, in the attempt to construct a national literature, each one has to have its own epic. Beowulf, or the Nibelung or whatever. It might be added that some people, actually assumptions seem very strange to us, but um, entirely well-intentioned, um, found that their literatures were missing um, um, national epics, so they went about to write, to write some. or um, Roganog in Wales is one well-known example. You can read about him in the book, The Invention of Tradition. It the Ho Ranger. Or another well-known example is the um, medieval epic poems in Czech, the epic of the Green Mountain, which are complete forgeries, made again with the best of intentions at the beginning of the 19th century. Czech seems to lack a national epic. very well. it should have one. It um, is, as I say, quite difficult to reconstruct the assumptions on which these people were working, there certainly not we would now call frauds. I come on to national philology. That's extremely interesting. Um, In Germany at the present day, in German literary studies, there's a kind of an ongoing war between two approaches to the study of German literature. One is called philology. The other is called, very often borrowing the English word, cultural studies. Now, it strikes me that um, a figure I mentioned earlier this morning um, provides an alternative model. This is the classicist Friedrich August Wolf. Wolf was a person who, as I, as I mentioned, um, <clears throat> established the view that the Homeric epics were put together for under shorter um, works. Wolf set up a program for classical studies under the name Wissenschaft, and it was not philology in the sense described, it was something much of wider ranging. Of course, the study of languages was central to it, but to be a proper Albert wissenschaftler, a proper study student of the classics, you had in you to master 24 disciplines, including geography, archaeology, numismatics, mm-hmm. and, and what have you. Now, and it was a serious academic program, and it bears some resemblance to what is nowadays called cultural studies, so important to know about. Um, I can to resist saying a little bit more about Goethe it was um, um, with the establishment of the German Empire in eighteen seventy one Goethe was made into the, into the national icon <coughs> um, which too many people still believe him to be before that it was customary to disparage Goethe to think he was immoral and much inferior to the extremely moral Schiller in in the interior Centennial, 1859, for example, Schiller was praised very much above Goethe. But <coughs> after 1871, you had Hermann Grimm's heroic biography of Goethe, and you had the great Weimar Ausgabe uh, of Goethe under the patronage of the Grand Duchess of Weimar, which in fact um, was, was not a complete edition, although it runs to about I think 163 volumes. But the was found an embarrassment. The Goethe was the author of a number of pornographic poems. <laughs> and these could not be included but the Grand Duchess would never stand for it. <laughs> now, last point, here I think I want, penultimate yes, point. I want to come to the defense of Matthew Arnold. It's certainly true that um, when Arnold Ar- Ar- was writing, instead of the language of nationalism, you have, you have the dreary and depressing language of ethnicity. And certainly in um, Victorian England, you have some extraordinary racial, racial constructions. Um, the villain of this story is um, uh, Robert Knox, mm-hmm. who in 1850 published a terrible book called The Races of Man. Um, according to Knox, the dominant race in the world today is the Celtic race. He counts the French as being Celts. Um, and his um, array of races includes among the, those he dislikes most what he calls in all seriousness the swinish Muscovite. <laughs> 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 but, um, Ireland is many cuts above that. If I want to make really used point about Ireland, let me use the word Philistine. But not actually not a racial term. He gets the words from German, he gets it from Pine, and in early 19th century Germany, Philistine, Philister, was student slang. It meant the town as opposed to the garden. The idea was the students were the chosen people and the townspeople were the Philistines. Um, so, um, also, when Arnold talks of Hellenes and, and um, Hebrews, he doesn't get a lot of straightforward racial categories. He gets them from Heine. Heine, in the 1830s, loved, to, loved to, to divide humanity into two camps, um, Hellenes and Hebrews. The Hellenes means people who are um, 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 liberal in their outlook, who are conscious of the body and the senses, and very much focused on this world. By Hebrews, it he means people who are ascetic by temperament, um, idealistic, focused on abstractions and the mixed world. And Heidel loves to play the ways that Arnold knew very well with these categories. And, for example, his essay on them Shakespeare, he says, Shakespeare is both Jew and Greek. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think the um, racial stigma doesn't quite belong to Arnold. The essay on Celtic literature, the lectures, are an extremely interesting document in ways that, uh, that you describe, and have some very curious comparisons of, of Celtic literature and um, examples of, of German literature. He says, for example, that um, the Celts have a real um, delicate and fairy-like imagination. He compares the description of an enchanted forest in a Celtic text, I forget which one, with a similar description in a German merchant it's and Arnold takes great, take great exception to the fact that in the German forest there are tall mushrooms, poor pilze, and he finds this utterly flat-footed. I said that um, the Celts would never um, 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 do anything so unimaginative. And that's my last point. Um, you ended with the very important reminder that the nation is no longer the matrix in which we study this literature. And I'd like to draw one conclusion from that. It seems to me that we should remember now well, that, contrary to the fiction of 19th century national literatures, a very, a very great deal of readings is done is done in translation. Most of us, if we didn't rely on translations, would never know Tolstoy or Dostoevsky, mm. let alone a very ingredient, let alone, frankly, for, for many of us, including myself, Homer. Um, I believe very strongly that one should try to read text in the original if one can, not because one is tapping into the thought design, but because the construction of a language helps to determine of can say and how you can say it. So, reading Virgil in the Hells of My Schoolboy Latin, for example, and coming to terms with an inflected language was a quite different experience and much more rewarding experience than reading Virgil in translation. Nevertheless, um, I think we ought to accept that literature always has been read a great deal in translation. Um, we should be aware of the limitations of translations, but we'll always have to read a text in more than one translation in the sense of it, we certainly should not be carried away by impossible and dated ideals of linguistic purity and sham translations. So that's what I want to say, thank you again for your enormously rewarding paper.